when you enter boredom, things can go bad, but things can also go good if they understood why that could happen in their brains and to unlock sort of this productive, creative, wonderful part of just staring into space. Hi, this is Universe of Art, a podcast from Science Friday and WNYC Studios about artists who use science to take their creations to the next level. I'm Dee Peter Schmidt. So I love podcasts. That's probably not coming as a big surprise from a podcast host, but it's true. I always have a ton of episodes in my queue that are just ready to be listened to and fill any conceivable in-between moment in my day. But it doesn't leave a lot of time for my brain to be bored and to daydream. And on the off chance that does happen, I'm always pleasantly surprised and rewarded by the topics my brain wanders to. So I'm trying to listen to less podcasts so I can just have more time to be bored. And apparently I'm not alone in being bad at daydreaming. That's the topic of today's episode, actually, the science of boredom and the important role daydreaming plays in our daily lives, including our ability to be creative. So here's Science Friday's Director of News and Audio, John Dankosky, in a sci-fi interview from 2021, talking with a scientist who studied how bad adults are at daydreaming, joined by the host of NPR's TED Radio Hour, Manoush Zamarodi, who wrote a whole book about boredom, which is not as boring as it sounds, I promise. Here's John. Oh, hi, this is Science Friday. I'm John Dankosky. Sorry, I was just daydreaming a bit there. You know, you ever do that? You just daydream for a few minutes in the middle of the day? I did that a lot as a kid. Usually it was about baseball or Star Wars or playing in a rock band. Now, you may have done the same thing growing up. And let's face it, as kids, we didn't have quite as many responsibilities. So we had the time to just let our minds wander. But I got to say, it's a lot harder these days. I mean, when I have a free moment, my mind usually wanders to COVID or politics or climate change or what I have to do tomorrow. But that's not really daydreaming, is it? And let's face it, when I have a free moment, I'm probably just going to look at my phone. As it turns out, it's not just me. Research shows that adults are really bad at daydreaming. Here to convince us that we should lean back into thinking for fun is my guest, Dr. Aaron Westgate, Assistant Professor of Psychology at the University of Florida in Gainesville. Dr. Westgate, nice to have you back on the show. Thanks so much for being here. Thanks so much for having me. So I want to start by asking, is there a scientific definition of what a daydream is? Oh, you know, that's a giant can of worms there. You know, when we use terms like daydreaming, of course, like we all have our sort of private intuitions of what it means. And even in like the scientific community, we've gotten into a lot of, you know, a little bit of, you know, what do you mean by daydreaming? What do I mean? And so we actually use the term thinking for pleasure, which is a little bit more precise. Uh, and we usually talk about it as being defined as intentional thinking for pleasure. So really sitting down and intentionally trying to have these positive uh, pleasant thoughts by yourself, or what we colloquially might call daydreaming. So uh, a list of things I'm doing tomorrow isn't a daydream, but imagining a possible future for myself might be. Exactly. So the, you know, if you sit down and you're imagining what you like need to do in the future, we'd call that planning. Or, you know, if you, not that I ever <laughs> do this, but you know, if you're walking down the street and you're overcome by like worries about what you need to do, we might call that mind wandering. And mind wandering can be a form of daydreaming, but it doesn't have to be. You know, it can be very unpleasant and aversive at times as well. So let's talk about your research. What exactly did you find when you tried to get adults to daydream? And, and how exactly did you do this? Yeah. So a few years ago, we had this great idea. We thought at the time that, you know, everyone has these busy lives. If we just gave everyone a few moments to daydream, that this would be fantastic. You know, it'd be relaxing and people would enjoy it. 
So we started bringing people into the lab and we'd put them in this room. We'd take away all their belongings and say, you know, for the next five to 20 minutes, we just want you to sit here and entertain yourself with your thoughts. You can think about whatever you want, but, you know, we want you to try to have a good time. And we got the data in and people did not enjoy this. Um, you know, on a one to nine scale from one is like not at all enjoyable to nine is extremely enjoyable. They gave it like a five, which I always say, you know, if you wanted to go to a movie and you saw it had like a 50% Rotten Tomato rating, like you wouldn't be impressed by this, right? Like a five out of nine is like pretty not great. So we're like, well, you know, well, but compared to what? What does that mean? And so we started sort of testing alternatives like would you rather think for pleasure, like we've asked you to do, or would you rather read a book or do something else by yourself? And of course, people were like, yeah, I'd rather do, I'd rather do something fun than think something fun. And so we thought like, well, you know, how far can this go? Um, what if it was something that wasn't so fun? Would people even give themselves, say, an electric shock rather than simply uh, sit and be alone with their own thoughts? And so we actually ran the study. We brought people into the lab. We took away all their belongings. We said, you know, we want you to experience this shock once just so that you know what it's like and rate it. And here's some other sort of experiences you can have. And later in the so-called second part of the study, we said, okay, now we want you to just sit here and entertain yourself with your thoughts. You can think whatever you want. Um, but by the way, you're still connected to that electric shock device. If, if you want, I don't know why you would, but if you want, you can press it and <laughs> it will shock you again. And so we, we left them in the room, you know, for, we said 10 to 20 minutes, it was about 12 minutes. And afterwards, we found that 67% of the men and about 25% of the women in this study who had told us earlier that they would pay money to not be shocked again, that they found the shock unpleasant, actually went ahead and, and shocked themselves uh, <laughs> during this supposedly fun daydreaming time. So, so hold it. Were they just, were they bored? Is that what this is all about? I think so. You know, I don't think it's that, you know, it's not something as like existential as like being alone with our thoughts is like torture. It's just, it's kind of boring. And, I, you know, when people are bored, we know they do all kinds of interesting things. And if you're in this bored room, your, your thoughts aren't super entertaining. Uh, and there's this button you know the button will shock yourself, but I think there's a real allure to pressing that button when we're bored. So, I mean, do you think there's benefit in trying to avoid boredom? Yeah, I think of boredom as really being this signal that what's going on isn't working for you right now, that it's this signal that you're not meaningfully engaged in the world and you need to do something to try to restore a sense of meaning or restore a sense of attention and making sure you're actually paying attention to what's going on. And people sort of look around for that and ways to do that. And um, hopefully they find good ways. But if the only option is a button that shocks yourself, at least some people <laughs> will will press that button. Okay. Well, Aaron, I knew that we were going to be talking about boredom. So I thought, who could we bring into the conversation that comes to mind immediately when I think about something boring? And it's my friend, Manoush Zomorodi. She's host <laughs> of the TED Radio Hour on NPR. <laughs> She's the author of the book, Bored and Brilliant, How Spacing Out Can Unlock Your Most Productive and Creative Self. She's been a guest and a host here on Science Friday. Manoush, it's great to have you back. John, you flatterer. He's telling me when you, when you think of being bored, you think of me. It's great to be here again. Well, look, you studied boredom just about as much as anyone. First of all, what do you think about what Aaron's been saying about people being so bored that they'll shock themselves? Yes, I am not surprised by that at all. Um I think this is 
it's so interesting to me because one of the things that I came into when I was writing a book about boredom was um, the use of the word bored, you know, which immediately has these awful connotations. And as you said, Erin, the word daydreaming has more of a positive sort of spin on it. So my goal with the experiments that I did that I wrote about in my book is to say to people, you know, when you when you feel bored, um, don't immediately turn to your gadgets, which is what we all usually do, anything to avoid being bored, right? Sit with that feeling of being bored. Sit with that uncomfortable feeling of being bored. Erin um, gave them the option to shock themselves. But what I said was, and maybe if you think of boredom as sort of a gateway to mind wandering, to what so-called positive constructive daydreaming, this idea of, um, and I'm sure Erin can speak more to this, acting Activating the default mode in our minds where we do all kinds of imagining and creative thinking and problem solving and autobiographical planning. And my hypothesis was that if you tell people, yes, you know, when you enter boredom, things can go bad, but things can also go good if they understood why that could happen in their brains, that they would be more inclined to indulge in it and to unlock sort of this productive, creative, wonderful part of just staring into space. And we'll be back to talk more about daydreaming and creativity right after this. What's so interesting about that, though, Manoush, is, is the idea that there's a connotation around daydreaming that doesn't necessarily lead itself to being thought of as productive, mm. right? People think mm-hmm. you're daydreaming. You're just lazing about. Your mind's just wandering. You're not actually being productive, but but you essentially say this is very productive time. Yeah. Like when I did the, the research into what happens, I, I had no idea that one of the things we do when we daydream is essentially time travel. We do something called autobiographical planning, which is that we look back at our past. We take note of the highs and lows. We tell ourselves a story, how we got to be sitting right here in this moment. And then we cast forward into the future and literally imagine, you know, what could my life be? And then work backwards to try and set the steps to reach those goals. So it's really, really important mental work that you cannot do if you are checking Twitter or, in my case, playing a particular game called Two Dots. <laughs> Aaron, I, I'd love for you to comment on that. What are your thoughts? You know, I really love that idea that, you know, something I say a lot is boredom isn't good or bad. It's a signal. And it's what we do with that signal that's important. Uh, there's a lot of research that connects boredom to a lot of these really fantastic outcomes. So, you know, creativity and mind wandering. And there's some really cool work that Jonathan Schooler and colleagues have done where they find that some of these sort of like epiphany moments in creative problem solving, they don't come when you're sitting at your desk and working on it. They come in the shower or they come in these moments when you're kind of doing something else and this thought just sort of pops into your head. So sort of that classic eureka aha moment in the bath, right? But we also have a lot of work showing that boredom can also lead to all these really negative, terrible outcomes. So like the electric shock studies that I told you about, um, my colleague Stefan Fatiker has work showing that when you induce boredom in the lab, it can also lead people to behave in sadistic ways. So grinding up bugs for fun or uh, taking money away from other participants in the study, like you don't get the money, you're just being a jerk. And so, you know, we have this, all this literature suggesting boredom sometimes leads to these good outcomes and it sometimes leads to these bad outcomes. And I think, uh, going back to what Manoush said, it really depends on how people 
choose to react to boredom in the moment and what options they have available to them. So, Erin, can I ask you a question? Yes. Um, um, One of the things that younger people told me, which I found so surprising, was they reported, you know, after they they put away their gadgets and and they tried to be more bored, essentially, they said to me, this is the weirdest, most uncomfortable feeling. I have never experienced it before. And I was like, wait a minute, what? You've never been bored? And they're like, well, yeah, I just look at my phone. So... I don't need to feel this way and I don't like it. Does that surprise you? Are you like thinking that some maybe some of the people that you had in your study had never been bored before, that they'd never even had this daydreaming sensation? So I I think that a lot of people have been bored, but I get this a lot, actually, when I ask people like, you know, I study boredom and they say, oh, I'm never bored. And I'm like, really, really, really? And (laughs) usually what I find is something like that flicker that leads people to pick up the phone that's boredom, right? Mm-hmm, like it's sort of a, mm-hmm. I always talk about boredom as like it develops over time and it starts with this little flicker that if you act on it, you can make it go away. And, you know, we know from the emotion literature and coping that, you know, there are lots of positive ways to cope with big emotions and negative emotions. And there are some not so great ways to cope with it. And the not great ways to cope usually involve suppressing the feelings instead of dealing with the feelings. Uh, So, you know, if boredom, part of what it's doing is saying, like, hey, what you're doing right now, it's not really super meaningful. Uh, Picking up your phone to sort of combat that and make that go away, it doesn't solve the the lack of meaning that produced it. Manoush, I should say your book was published back in 2017. Do you think that the world of boredom has changed somehow? Because I can't imagine that the book that you wrote in 2021 about this topic would be the same because it's been a year. (laughs) Honestly, I've been astounded at how, in in some ways, prescient the book was <laughs> because, and I and I say that because that's what people are telling me that they're like, I didn't get why I needed your book until this year. That I think for some people, the ones who were privileged enough to be stuck at home and and not working on the front lines, there was a lot of boredom. There was a lot of bread baking. There was a lot of Instagramming of our bread baking, right? And there was a lot of people who were like. I feel trapped and uncomfortable in part because I have so much time to think. And so my, my book, in, one, in addition to explaining sort of the neuroscience of what happens with boredom and exploring the linguistic use of the word, I also have these exercises where it, it's a challenge. It's, it's very specific and discreet. Try this. Lean into boredom now that you understand how you can sort of get to this positive daydreaming side and see if if it helps. And, you know, part of it is just observing yourself under, you know, running sort of behavioral experiments on yourself in captivity. That's kind of one of my things that I love to do. It sounds a little statistic, but it can be wonderful as well. And so to have people saying like, you know, understanding it, knowing that you've tried it, knowing that thousands of other people have tried it because it was based on a on an experiment we did uh, in 2015 with 20,000 people. I think that gave them permission to kind of relax into the boredom, into the daydreaming and to to hopefully embrace it in some ways and to see some of the positive effects that we've been discussing. Yeah, Aaron, I'm wondering if, if you have any thoughts on this, on how this specific year of COVID has maybe changed the way either you or people you study think about daydreaming and time being bored? You know, that's such an interesting question. Um, we've started to collect some data on this. And one of the things that has struck me is how variable people's experiences have been. Uh, I work from home most of the time. I certainly have been on like team boredom this pandemic, I guess I would say. <laughs> uh, a lot of bread was baked in this house as well. Um, 
But, you know, there's a lot of folks, too, when we look at this, you know, sort of this global data from like over 60,000 folks, um, there are many people who, you know, especially essential workers, folks in healthcare, uh, who haven't been bored at all. And so I think really understanding this variability and embracing it to some extent. And I really love, um, Manoush, your point about sort of the self-experiments and the importance of, you know, all of the data that we collect in psychology is really sort of about the average, like what typically works for a typical person. And I think it's really important for folks to do those experiments on themselves and say like, well, does this work for me? Um, And being able to adapt um, things like that to people's own circumstances, especially during the pandemic, when so many people are having such very different experiences, I think is really, really valuable. You know, Aaron, what you just said really speaks to a lot of the stories that I heard from the people who have have followed the exercises in the book, which is that for some people, they have an epiphany and they decide, you know what, I haven't talked to my dad in 20 years. I'm going to do it because they've really thought about how they want to go about doing it. They've thought very carefully. For other people, it's simply like, oh, I'm happier when I sleep more and I pick up my guitar instead of being on Facebook. And so they decide to do that more. Every as much as the data, you know, is interesting, it's really very much the personal stories about how boredom, I think, is an extremely and daydreaming, a very personal experience that you treat yourself, you know, lean into the boredom, lean into the daydreaming. It's just for you. No one else. And Aaron, do you have any thoughts about that? If people want to reframe some of this pent up boredom into positive daydreaming, do you have any tips for them? Yeah. So I always think of boredom as being an invitation to fix something that's going wrong. And we know that you can make things less boring by making them more meaningful and making them a better fit. It's like Goldilocks. You don't want to do something that's too hard or too easy. And you can apply that to thinking to make daydreaming more enjoyable and more accessible as well. So you want to pick topics that are meaningful to you. Um, You know, imagining eating ice cream is kind of fun, but it's not deeply meaningful and satisfying. Um, And you want to make it easy on yourself. Uh, Thinking is actually really, really hard. It involves a lot of cognitive effort. You have to be this playwright and the audience and the director and the actors of this whole like mental performance. So anything you can do to make it easier by having topics in mind, by reminding yourself of what you want to think about, by picking moments uh, where you don't have a lot else going on, where you can really focus is really key to making it easy, making it meaningful, and having a more enjoyable and less boring experience. Dr. Aaron Westgate is Assistant Professor of Psychology at the University of Florida in Gainesville. Thank you so much for joining us on Science Friday. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much. And Manoush Zomorodi is host of the TED Radio Hour on NPR, and she's author of the book Bored and Brilliant. She's based in New York. Always good to talk with you, Manoush. You too, John. Thanks for having me back. Universe of Art is hosted and produced by me, Dee Peterschmidt, and I also wrote the music. The segment you just heard was originally produced by Kathleen Davis. Our show art is illustrated by Abel Hayford, and support for Science Friday Science and Arts coverage comes from the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation. Also, if you have an idea for a future episode of Universe of Art, you can send us an email or a voice memo to universe at sciencefriday.com. We'll be back in two weeks. See ya!